Welcome to Dirt with Dermot and Paul. This week we're discussing gardens of the future, what they look like and how we'll interact with them. We'll also talk about Dermot's outdoor bath, <laughs> which he's recently rigged up, plumbed up or re-rigged to be more accurate. And we'll hear about how Dermot interpreted the story of Mary Eleanor Bowes in designing a garden for the National Trust over in the UK. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. How far are we off Christmas? Oh, for sake. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> We're well, not talking Christmas. Though. Why not? Well, it's the most magical time of the year, and it's the best time of year to kind of forget about the garden. You're hilarious, and Aiden, you go along with this? Oh yeah, why not? Because you're two of the most cynical people, careful, <laughs> I've ever met, and you find Christmas a joyous time. Oh, it's magical. It's fantastic. Do you like Christmas Day itself or is it the build up to it? Oh, everything. I love a good row. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's November, boys and girls. We can't start talking about Christmas. But the song goes, so here it is. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's having fun. Look to the future, which is how we're going to introduce this segment. The future is what we're looking to, aren't we, Dermot? Nice. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't think we can not even Greta has associated COP26 and Christmas well Greta's missing a trick because if she wants people to listen she should be uh, you know capitalising on Christmas although that's not what Greta's about but she said she's going to stop swearing did she? yeah did you see that? no but that would be a shame I agree that's kind of her USP isn't it? Or one of them. Well, blah, blah, blah is her USP. And it sums it up. It's quite Trumpian because he's very good at the short, snappy phrases. And blah, blah, blah is her sum up of COP26. Now, we're recording this when there hasn't been an agreement and when it's still going on. All the leaders have jetted off back to their luxurious lives in their home states. And the negotiating teams are still there. But I think Greta really sums up the frustration of many people, especially younger people, with climate change. Yeah, and... Did you see her do the Rick Astley? I, I don't follow... On the very first you not, episode... Okay. okay, so we'll listen to it now. We are no strangers to love. that have to do with the price of cabbage it's just like where and I, I, I'm lost it's branding isn't it it's just branding is that it do you think I think so no I think it's a f- off everybody I'll do I'm a teenager and I'll have fun if I want to it's probably a bit and bad. it's for somebody who's known has been angry and you know the way Trump was misogynist anyway and uh, has had a it's a bit unfair comparing Greta to Mark the Trump. No, but he used to characterise her as Miss... Uh, and they're just joyous. I had a kid. 
I love that, but I'm the only one who loves that, I see. My newspaper editor got onto me, or a newspaper editor got onto me and asked for 400 words on what gardens will look like in 50 years' what time. What did you do wrong that he got onto you and asked for it? It's like, an, I want a 400-word essay. <laughs> was it lines or was it an actual article he wanted? He <laughs> <laughs> wants an article. Okay. But it was very interesting. It really does make you think. And as gardeners, we're well aware of climate change because, you know, Aideen, you'll be the same. We're of a similar vintage. Growing up... What? Oh! <laughs> growing cut, up... Cut, you, you remember really cold winters, don't you? I do remember really cold winters. Yes, I do. And we just don't get them anymore. We get freak occurrences like the beasts of the east and we get these dramatic snowfalls and storms. But we have mild winters. Well, we have a mild Christmas, but we have a very protracted winter afterwards, I think. I think it's late. It's cold very late in the year. But it is still warm compared to what it used to be. We don't get heavy frosts in general anymore. It might be different in the Midlands, but in general on the island, we don't get kind of permafrost the frost that lasts for a month that you can't plant into any of that that used we, we, we used to get a little bit of that how um, old are you guys <laughs> was like, was well, it, did it really happen like did we really have winters that were that bad no they weren't that bad but you remember you know as a kid you only remember sunny summer days but as a gardener I remember you know frosty winter mornings and those are gone now. Grass is even growing in December and January. People are out, you know, with the lawnmowers and whatever, keeping everything neat and tidy. And the way I really appreciate it or see it is with dramatic rainfall. We've always had a lot of rain on this island, but now it comes down like subtropical rain. And whenever I post on Instagram pictures of the rain in my garden because I have this veranda and it pours off the roof of the veranda and my garden kind of looks subtropical around that part of uh, the, 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 the planting. It's unbelievably dramatic and the water has no place. It comes down so fast it has no place to drain away and then we get lots of flash floods all around the country. So we do notice the a pattern of change in our Yeah, weather. as gardeners we're more aware uh, of the weather than anyone else. Uh, number one, because you have to have to go well, out to a meteorologist might be a bit more. Uh, not much, because they don't have to bloody get out on a cold day or a wet day and do anything. So True. gardeners are hyper aware because it really does affect their work. A meteorologist, whether it is a hurricane or you know a heat wave, doesn't affect what they have to do. That's right. It's all charts and automatic sent in from, uh, from weather stations station. and burr. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, you know, the work involved in that mm. is minuscule. We're going to have loads of complaints from the four meteorologists that work in this country now. <laughs> Look what you've done. <laughs> Uh, but gardening, you know, you are hyper aware because it, everything you do is affected by the weather and how we garden is affected by the weather and how we garden into the future will change because the weather, the climate, the world as we know it is changing and how we use our gardens is changing. So it really so is. These are our predictions for what will happen. So I've been asked by the editor to um, anticipate 50 years time. So for a bit of crack let's do that the garden of the future the garden of the future first of all I think we're all going to be very garden aware and very green aware because 50 years really isn't a huge amount of time our city won't look very different to the way it is now in terms of the built structure of the city because we have a Georgian city in Dublin and uh, a number of Georgian cities around so they won't be knocking them down or changing them massively say that to someone who lives in Dubai 50 years isn't a long time 
Yeah, well, uh, that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what they're doing out there? They're making eco cities. Uh, yeah, and the desert and they Saudi. had a greenfield site. I mean, m- maybe Dubai won't be a sustainable city. Maybe it'll have to be abandoned. Well, they're talking about going carbon neutral, which is quite incredible. And remember, yeah. they do have amazing resources because they have all that sunshine, solar power, all the stuff that the the batteries that Elon Musk is developing and all that. So I think there's going to be huge advantages in But they technology. don't have the most important anyway, one, which is water. Okay. Well, they do... They do, they do have water because they're they're a coastal stage. Yeah, they have it in that. Um, but water is one of the most important things going forward because we're going to have it. It's not going to change the amount of water, but the amount of it that will be available at any time will change. And as you say, the frequency of it and the extremes will change. So the way we garden, we're probably going to have gardens where. In the summer, they'll be bone crispy dry. In the winter, they'll be quite wet. And the plants that we grow will have to reflect that. So that's the first big change. What we think of as the Irish cottage garden or the English cottage garden will maybe disappear in the next 50 years because a lot of those perennial plants that we like to use, lupins and delphiniums, won't like the drought conditions in midsummer. And the type of plants that will come in in their place are kind of Mediterranean uh, plants, plants that will take that drought. Uh, So things like trees like pomegranates and citrus fruits and even some of the hardier bougainvilleas will be commonplace in this country. Yeah, pine trees, all of those things, you know, that are more so adapted to it. The example that you could use, and I know you're not a huge fan of it because you don't think it looks fantastic, but it's in Bet Chateau's garden in the southeast of the UK, uh, of England. And that is, it was an old car park, I think, that Bet turned into this gravel garden to show that it's a very dry part of the UK. And she was proving that you can grow plants without any water. And I think the whole point is there, apart from establishing the plant, they might get water for the first season. They're, they get no extra water and the plants there have to survive. And it's a very different type of garden to what you might expect, but it still works and it's a functional so space. But Bet Chateau is an amazing plants woman and a, a very nice person indeed who had this garden in Colchester in the UK, which by nature has really quite a dry climate. And not a, her, her garden was really quite amazing because I think she started off doing a lot of the work on her own. And it has a number of different areas. So it has bog gardens, it has big ponds, but it also had this dry area. And she showed how we... I, I think when she started gardening in that area, she just wanted a quick fix. But she decided to go with the conditions. And it became an inspiration for so many people around the world because she showed what would grow in gravel areas. And you think they're more gardens. It doesn't seem to, doesn't fit right with the Irish climate for me. No, and if anyone looks up that garden, just Bet Chettle's gravel garden, it probably won't inspire you greatly because it's not the type of garden you would expect us to grow here. But it could be what we will grow. Maybe we'll take certain plants, you know, and be inspired by that. But it's not the most attractive place in the world. Not the most attractive style of gardening, I guess, to what we all want. I I think it's a very interesting point. I think there will be gardening police who issue fatwas, uh, a bit like the... Now we're getting back to the future on you. A bit like the teenagers who uh, was, you know, the woke and not woke. I think we will only be allowed to do things that are appropriate. I think we'll be a much greener society. I think our use of cars will completely disappear. They're even changing so fast. I plugged in my car uh, while we were doing this podcast and I'll drive home on electricity generated 
by God knows what. Uh, but in 50 years, we will probably no longer individually own cars. We will summon vehicles. They'll come and collect us. They'll drop us off so we won't need car parking space outside our houses so we can give those space, the tarmac, atom, concrete or paved space over to garden areas. In the cities, we don't need these. We won't need these big car parks. So potentially there will be more space for growing, for green space. That will all hugely help because uh, if we grow, we convert carbon dioxide into oxygen and also the driveways and those parking spaces can be used for water runoff and the water can be slowed down or absorbed into the ground, into the water table. And that's hugely important because, uh, you know, we live in a country where it rains a lot and every year, guaranteed around, you know, between now and March or April, there'll be reports of certain cities flooding, certain areas of the country flooding. And it gets worse and worse every year. And the reason for that, in some ways, is bad urban planning. Uh, you know, we were given permission to build houses in places where we really shouldn't have had. And the lack of forward thinking in terms of how we get rid of all that excess water. If we keep concreting over all of this, you know, natural draining land, it has nowhere to go. The water will eventually back up and flood other places. So there is this uh, it's initiative. Is it a, I'm not sure what it's the term for it, but it's SUDS. So it's Sustainable yeah, SUDS, which is Sustainable Urban Development System, something like that, which when you are planning a town, you incorporate, you know, drainage into your planting. You incorporate these things called, I think, floodbeds, whereby water right. off the road goes into these areas of planting That's that right. then naturally drain away the water. So and it's all we about see them in, when, when we go on our holidays uh, to places in Europe and the, the States, you see these amazing structures that are flood drains, but they're like big dry riverbeds in effect in the middle of cities yeah. and they're completely designed for runoff of water when they get that uh, uh, torrential rain c- uh, coming down it has a place to go they're devi- designed into the infrastructure we'll need that in smaller ways in terms of on a street level and in bigger ways in terms of city level. I think technology is going to run our lives, but we will have got you. It'll no longer be a big thing. We won't all be talking about the iPhone or the iPad or Facebook or Meta or whatever these things. We'll just be used to it. It will be our way of living. I think as opposed to that, we'll be much greener because we'll need an outlet for creativity. And one of the best outlets and one of the things that really makes you feel good is working with soil, working with nature and growing plants. So we'll have a new range of plants. I think this reliance on native will go completely because we won't be able to grow some of the plants that we that, that are native to these islands anymore and we will welcome in other species, pollen producing species. I think with the change in climate we will have bees even in the middle of winter. and um, uh, That will be a bit of an issue because we'll still have short, sharp frosts or snows. So you'll have all sorts of insects that are living during winter, which will be killed off in, um, you know, one or two harsh occasions during the winter. So our flora will be very different. Our architecture will be very different. I think we'll have that idea of the 15-minute city. I think we will be having farms on top of rooftops on supermarkets. I think we'll be having indoor farms. I think maybe some of those multi-storey car parks, which will be no longer in use, might be turned into indoor vertical gardens um, under grow lamps. 
the place will hardly be recognisable. But I think there'll be something else that'll be very interesting. I think through the way virtual reality is going, we will be able to visit gardens, our garden styles, without leaving home. We'll be able to put on these headsets or have these rooms that are fully immersive experiences and we'll be able to go to places like Mediterranean gardens, like Italian gardens, like American desert gardens without leaving home and believe that we are there. So we will have the smells, the full sensory and visual experiences. But not only that, we'll be able to go back to places like... So Hadrian was this uh, emperor in ancient Rome uh, around the year 200 BC and he built a villa near Tivoli. We'll be able to go to that villa as it's been built, as he's wandering around. We'll be able to see him. We might be able to interact with him. Hadrian, you bollocks! Yeah, you're not going to like him because uh, be it a fantastic emperor and he did lots of huge, greatly things and he, you know, ruled half of the world or whatever. But he was really a bollocks because he probably had 10,000 slaves. Uh, he probably didn't pay anyone. Well, slaves, you don't pay slaves. And he was probably a real dickhead. So I don't know why you really want to go to see this person's garden. I didn't say I want to go. OK. And see, talk to him. Look, the year is... 1899 then and we're going to Godalming in Surrey and we're going to a garden called Monstead Wood a newly built house <laughs> built by Edwin Lodgins for this grumpy old there Gertrude Jekyll and she is being a bit of a I won't be as rude as you but she's ordering her gardener's rent she's been listening and reading uh, the words of William Robinson she's echoing the way plants are growing and she is pioneering the contemporary garden she's pioneering what becomes known as the cottage garden or the chocolate box garden. She's using herbaceous plants that have been brought to these islands over the last couple of hundred years to create carpets of colour in a border that's 200 foot long, 10 foot deep. The type of thing you're still doing today. So you can be there at the birth of that, looking over her shoulder. Interestingly, she was also blind or very close to being blind, which is why she used colour in such huge, uh, vastly swathes rather than just little pops of colour like we often do. Uh, to really, for her to see it, she had to really use it en masse and in quantity, which was... I know, because she used to cool. be a painter. Uh, I mean, she came from a well-to-do family in London. She was a painter. She used to go to the National Gallery and copy Turner's masterworks. And when the eyesight started uh, uh, failing, she began to paint with plants. Oh, huh. there you go. I'm up in the game, aren't I? You are. So we're going to be able to go back and see all of these quite fantastic things from the comfort of our own living room. But just think about that. How amazing is that? I mean, when I saw it, I, I saw it, when I said it first, I saw Aideen waking up. How amazing is that? We'll be able to go back to ancient Egypt and look at the gardens that were built that will feel familiar to us because they will see the origins of the origins of symmetry in gardens, how controlling nature by using plants, bringing them in, planting them in order, having a pool with carpet and lotus flowers. We'll be able to visit all that, see all that, get an understanding of all that. Now, albeit in a virtual world, and then we will go... So, will we be able to edit the virtual world to take out all the nasties and, like, the fact that while they were building those pyramids, there was masters there whipping people to connect them and, you know, people falling off the cliff for the They're pyramid. They're beginning just... to reassess all that, and they reckon that a lot of the people who carved the stone for those pyramids were actually quite middle class and fed really well. Yeah, but the ones that were pushing the stone into place weren't. Come on. 
that's all a bit high in the sky, isn't it? It's all a bit. They were from Carlo. Well, there you go. That's <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't know, but we will be able, I mean, people will have built these pictures and will have been hired to do this by big studios and whatever, but we will be able to go and visit all these garden stalls. We'll be able to see the Alhambra as it was been built. We'll be able to walk through it, understanding what the the amazing engineering behind those fountains. We'll be able to see Lenart roll out his plans in front of the Sun King and we'll be observers. We'll be in the room. It will be quite amazing. That will give us a completely different understanding of what gardens are all about, how to make a garden. And it'll turn us towards, I think, I think a more realistic vision of why we need to work with nature, why we need to conserve resources. When houses are being built, they will be built with water tanks underneath the, the garden so that we can save any rainwater that does come down for use in irrigation during those. And all the water we use in the house will be reused in the garden and we'll have a totally different way of, which we already have began, but we just haven't quite, we don't do that universally. It's not the done thing, whereas I think in the future that will become so normal that people will wonder why in the early 2020s were they still doing daft things like putting all of this drainage water down into the And using nitrates and phosphates which leach into waterways and streams and poison fish and uh, whatever, when we can make our own Fertiliser, or you know, virtually all our rice at that stage will, even the waste we personally produce, will be recycled and reused. Well, you know, you'll be a vegan eating insects at the most, so you'll be fine. You'll be able to just use it in the garden. I um, think that's true. There, so 2071 uh, is the, the year. The, the other thing is, because we'll get vicious storms, because we're planting the seeds of all those storms now, and all that rainfall now, the way we're using the resources of the world now, there are, the storms will be so bad, they reckon, that we won't be planting those big trees that can be taken down with storms or tornadoes. So the type of planting that will go on will be much smaller and much more suited to this new what? environment. Yeah. No trees? No, smaller trees. What? So we won't be planting the big oak trees or whatever. Well, the big oak trees mightn't like it anymore. If anyone is listening in 2071... <laughs> I want to see how much of this actually was true. And before we came in here... Well, myself and Aiden won't be around, but they might wheel you into the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was a cynic then. What am I going to be like in 50 years? (laughs) Are you still going to be enjoying Christmas? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. I'll have to use solar panels to power all the lights, but I'll still have a fantastic camp. Terrible tacky display because that's when you're allowed to. Christmas time taste goes out the window, right? (laughs) <laughs> Dirt, a Go Loud original. You've done a bit of building. Well, well I, welding work is. Yeah, I've kind of got the plumbing working in the house for the first time in many years. And when you say in the house, well, that's <laughs> quite loose, isn't it, the term? <laughs> I've got, you know, I've had a bat out on the veranda for as long as I've had the house. Yes, yeah. And you know we had the beasts of the east and it blocked all our burst the pipes and I woke up to snow and ice and water pouring from the house. And the bath sort of didn't, didn't make it. work. And okay. we hadn't had a chance to have a bath outside yet. So that was a good few years ago. And just in the last few weeks, we've had a plumber in and he's got it all working. 
So what is it like bathing outside, inside in Ireland? It's the most unbelievable, refreshing, wonderful thing. It would make you want to wash. <laughs> it's a shame you don't follow your own. <laughs> it's a very small studio, ladies and gentlemen. You're, you're such a spoofer because I, uh, I know. Yeah, I have to declare. Uh, Paul often stays over, and he sleeps in a bedroom in the attic, but there's no bathroom attached, and he washes in the. Even sometimes when I say, "Look, that bedroom where there's a shower is free," there's the tiniest sink, and that's where he does all his stuff. Yeah, down by the front An door. Entire washing in a sink, no bigger than a two-liter bottle of water. I don't know, so I don't. I've never known how you do that, but you're young, you get away with it. Um, we have now a bath and shower, and the shower isn't just like a normal shower. It's like one of these rainforest showers outside on the veranda. You're surrounded by planting, and the planting is still in flower because it's that. Um, Solanum jasminoides climbing plant that has really lovely white flowers and it is the coolest thing even on cold rainy winter nights now Dermot people who follow you on Instagram will know where the bath is so so, I've seen pictures but if you kind it's of it's outside the bedroom at the end of the veranda and it's a big white contemporary tub and but your your veranda is like a wraparound. It's, it's 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 wraparound. So I changed the whole architecture of the house by adding this wraparound veranda, so I could have plants growing up, and I could knock off at all the small windows of the house and open up all the house on both levels to the garden. So from any room upstairs, you can walk out from the landing. You can walk out virtually into the garden, into this space that we use pretty much all year round. But we will use it all year round now. That the bath works. I have to say, though, the idea of going outside in the middle of winter to bath when there's a perfectly nice, warm, relatively centrally heated, you know, nice house. Why? What What? What would possess you to do that? I don't... Just the most amazing, relaxing feeling not being surrounded. You're nearly the same way in your house in Wales because the walls are virtually falling down and the bath has certainly uh, collapsed. Well, it came through the ceiling and yes, there's <laughs> a couple of things like that. But that's it, you get out of the bath and the last Paul, thing you want to do is freeze to death. It's like getting out of bed in a cold room. Let me, it's just hard work. Let me explain something about my house. It's run by, along the lines of one of these um, statelets in the old USSR, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, any of these things, any of these countries that made up the old USSR, that's the lines along which my house is run. There is a governing body known as the authorities who are deeply conservative. (laughs) And when I put a bath out there initially, it was, my God, what is happening? And, you know, there was hell to play for years. The authorities love the bath. Now, if the authorities love the bath... If you're the USSR, I wonder how my house is ran, but maybe we shouldn't <laughs> go well, into that. There was something in between the USSR and it was an opening that Gorbachev or uh, Yeltsin brought in. Glasnost. Per, Glasnost. So it was in between the kind of full capitalism or whatever. So my bath, bath is a Glasnost feature and it works incredibly well. The dog is very confused, starts yelping when I'm in the bath and whatever and when it's when it is cold outside you do have to bury yourself up to your neck in really hot water but it's heaven and I watch movies out there I put the Netflix on on the iPad and I watch movies from I remain to be convinced but 
Okay. I mean, the 16-year-old is mortified by all this and will keep... So at least there's someone with sense in the property. She keeps to the west wing of the house, but when when all that is going on, you do have to alert her to the fact that there might be naked people out on the veranda, but apart from that... (laughs) Jesus. That is every teenager's worst nightmare, his naked parents walking around the house. You know, and, and then her boyfriend came around the uh, the other day and had some sort of allergy and I accused him of being a snowflake and she went bright red and whatever because it's quite a young relationship and she said no because his dad also had wheat intolerance so I was virtually banned to the cupboard to eat. Wheat intolerance? You call that snowflakey? <laughs> <laughs> I was only messing with him. I wanted to wind him up. You know, I'm doing what dads should do to boyfriends. Doesn't that go back to the famine, our intolerance for wheat here? <laughs> because we had such a reliance Paul, on potatoes Paul, maybe, maybe that now. we had no wheat in, in our diet. Of being um, because we had so little wheat in our diet, it meant that our guts developed to not really process a bunch of gluten. So Irish people are much more susceptible to being celiac than anywhere else in the world. I never knew that. No. I think, yeah, no, I'm not just pulling it out of my backside. It really is. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> and so you should be much, much nicer to your preferential future son-in-law. He's, uh, they're 16, Paul. Uh, uh, weirder things have happened. I'm loving how we got from the bath to the famine. <laughs> well, we were talking about the famine, so I thought, you know what? <laughs> There's not many podcasts that can do that. <laughs> Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. Listener, let me tee this up. So last week on the podcast, I talked about a commission that I had got to design part of a an estate uh, a walled garden in a place called Gibside and I told Paul the story of a particular lady and her history and I want to see what he remembered because now I'm about to tell him about the design. So what do you remember from last week's podcast? Is this a test? Yeah. I mean, I only ever listen to about 50% of what anyone is saying. So yeah, but it's a you, bit unfair. Yeah, but you have this kind of idea in your head that you any talk I give, you could give it 10 times over without... Uh, bec- uh, you could pretend to me... If you could do the accent, you could pretend to be me. So pretend to be me and tell me what I said last week. Well, I'm going to give you the headlines because we don't have time to do it all again. What was her name? Her name was Mary Eleanor. Uh, she came from this estate Mary in Gibbs. Her surname is irrelevant in the story, so there's no point in getting bogged down in details. Bo. Bo. Yeah. Okay. It's not irrelevant because we know that in the Bo's lines, the great, 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 great grandmother to Queen Mum. Right. Well, there you go. Maybe it's more relevant than I thought. However, she was very well to do, only daughter of a baron, heir, count, whatever the hell he was. Uh, he wasn't aristocracy, he was just rich. He was rich, okay, same difference. And he had this big estate, only daughter, but he kind of... Only child, not only daughter. Well, by the fact she was an only child, she was also an only daughter. So, you know, that's just being picky for the sake of it now. Well, it's not, because if he'd had other children, he wouldn't have 
brought her up the way. Well, he invested more time in her and he brought her up in the way uh, maybe her son would have been brought up and she was taught to do things that most ladies of the time wouldn't have been taught to do and given the opportunity to do. Made to be very healthy, played lots of games, learned to horse ride, given a great love of gardening and science. Yeah, and long story short, her dad died. No, 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 I'm interested in the long story. Go on. No. Um, she, dad died and she then uh, got married. Well, no, did she get married twice? There was a first marriage... And to who? A man. <laughs> it was very conventional. <laughs> he was an MP. Was he the one who died? Five kids died on his way to Portugal. Oh, okay. I didn't listen to that bit. But then the second husband was more interesting because he basically uh, tricked her into marrying him. And When she was the wealthiest widow in Europe. Unbelievable amount of, uh, amount of money. She had a few bob, yeah, and this man tricked her into marrying him on his alleged deathbed. He wasn't dying at all. And he then went on to spend 10 or 15 years with her and he was an absolute beep time in here. Oh, he, he was, was a bollock. Yeah. yeah, he was just terrible. And Andrew Stoney, yeah. from where we get the expression Stoney broken, that's what he did to and her. He came from ascent. Wexford, so you know you can't say much more about him than that. <laughs> um, yeah, and he he eventually, what happened to him? He ended up in a debtor's prison, but he was devious oh. and cunning and awful and kind of beyond redemption, but because the dad had brought her up, given her a great education, great love of gardening and great physical strength. I mean, what the guy didn't do to her, but she escaped once, beat her up, she escaped again with the help of her uh, servants, never went back to and one took a court case against him and was the first woman to win her freedom oh yeah and the yeah. remnants of the estate whatever never went back to the estate it went to her son and she lived the rest of her days down in the south of, uh, of, of England and eventually that estate was given over to the National Trust which is a body set up to look after the architectural and creative heritage of uh, British institutions I suppose and this is where you come in because about however many years ago they approached you to design a brand new garden for Gippside. And in designing this garden I was asked to adhere to one principle which was spirit of place. Now there had been lands there and buildings there since the 1500s but the story that really resonated with me probably because of the horror of Sony Bowes probably because of that Irish angle and probably because the Duchess of Stratmore, Mary, Mary Eleanor, was the prime figure in its history. Very sad story. I decided to take her story as the inspiration for the garden. It was the place I was asked to redesign was a wall garden. The only reason I was allowed and commissioned to realize, to design this wall garden was there were no existing plans from the 17th century, from the 18th century, when the garden might have been laid out by uh, Switzer. So they had permission to do something new. So representing her, what would I do within that garden? And what did you come up with? I came up with... I spent a lot of time in Gateshead, in Newcastle, in the 
kind of twin cities uh, on either side of the town. I realised the heritage of the place. I realised the the fact that this garden had been rebuilt by because lands had been sold off over the years to the Forestry Commission, to this place, to that place, and the National Trust had, you know, slowly but very surely and very dedicatedly rebuilt this estate. The main house no longer exists. It's a ruin. There are other features. One of the features is a banqueting house, which is a nice kind of folly up on a hillside, but that's owned by the Landmark Trust. So I went into this place. I visited many times and I observed how people used it. And it is just normal people. What really got to me was how democratic the place has become because the fortune on which this estate was built was coal mining. And the people who use this garden now are the descendants of those coal miners. And the, descend- the, the coal miners back then included women and children who went into these horrible conditions physically underneath the estate and in vast areas around um, to mine this coal. And conditions were awful. Accidents were very, very common. The heat down there wasn't good. You know, people would almost be naked in some cases, uh, chipping away at this rock, bringing out the coal. And the family made the money because they controlled every piece of, of, of coal that went all the way to, 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 to London. But the people who I would observe going in there were kids with their parents. And I remember being a kid with my parents going to the Phoenix Park and wanting to engage. And when you walk into a walled garden, what is there to engage with if you're a kid? So I'd see all these joyous people, because they're very like Irish people. They're northern English, soulful, um, honest, decent, hardworking people. And I'd see the kids out with their parents and I said, how's there one way we can tell Mary Ellen her story and let these kids get involved and have fun and, you know, be allowed to be off the leash in the area that I've been given custody of. Because so, quite often these gardens turn into museum pieces with red velvet ropes and, you know, do not touch or don't walk on the grass or don't go near the border. And to be honest, that's a bit crap in terms of a garden to engage people. It looks great, fantastic, whatever, but it doesn't really, you know, do anything for the visitor apart from look nice. That That's absolutely right, Paul. But what I had to contend with with the fact that that it was a national trust, that it was beloved by the population there, that it was becoming an important property for the national trust because of where it was. It wasn't really well known. And the most important thing was that a lot of these gardens and houses are run by volunteers. And the volunteers were hugely invested in the estate and in this walled garden. And indeed, they had brought it back to being a walled garden. So they had plots where they grew fruit and vegetable and educated people about the way it had been and uh, how important it was. So... Looking at the wall garden, I'd, I'd go in there and I'd stand and I had that whole thing of being a fraud, being found out, imposter syndrome, all of that. Why was I been asked, of everybody, been asked to create a garden in this kind of hollowed ground, you know, um, historically important place representing a historically important yet British story. And I began to see the, in the context of Mary Eleanor's story the wall garden as a kind of prison because it's walls it's four walls with one small entrance uh, at the top of the garden and a small exit at the bottom of the garden and what would I do there to tell her story and represent her 
and I decided on land art. Land art is when you use physicality. So when you create mounds or depressions or transform the landscape, the volume of the earth into some interesting shape. So I decided on representing Mary Eleanor as a large mound. So building a large mound because she was the figure that's the... But I wanted to build this large mound in a way that you could see it beyond the wall garden, which was interfering with the whole working and visual appearance of the uh, estate. So in my mind, I built a mound that was eight metres high that kids could run up and roll down and engage with and have fun. And I decided that it wouldn't be central to the wall garden because Mary Eleanor never did what was expected of her. She broke conventions. So rather than doing it as in perfect symmetry, I built it off to one side. And then I realised that there were so many people around her. Her dad, who she absolutely adored. Her mum, who died when she was very young. The five kids she'd had. Mary, the servant, who was there for her right the way through. And indeed, other people who weren't so good in her life. Stoney, this guy who came over from Wexford and took advantage of her. So around Mary Eleanor's mounds, I built a kind of ripple effect of other mounds. So immediately around her mound, but slightly more, I did slightly lower, I did a ring of other mounds. So one would represent her dad and then her first hubby and then the kids. So this ring was, let's say, if the first mound was eight metres high, the second ring of ripple mounds was six and a half metres high. And then outside that again, I did it for the people, the gardeners who worked the estate, the people who made the estate, the people. So it was a ripple effect of Mary Eleanor's mound in the centre of this configuration and then these mounds that got smaller and smaller but rippled through and eventually these mounds were just bumps in the ground bursting through the walls of this estate. So it was land art and then what I did was I mixed up all the different plants that you might have found in Mary Eleanor's day so herbaceous perennials and grasses and fruits and whatever and it was almost as, I, as if I put in a bucket, this idea of herbaceous borders and orchards and whatever. And I emptied them around these mounds and they began to form rivers. So you have this landscape that is one big round, then a ripple of smaller rounds. In Stoney's case, he didn't get a mound, he got a depression. So a negative imprint in the ground. Aideen is smiling. I love this. And then these other mounds. And then rivers of what you'd expect from a National Trust garden lapping up against these mounds. And I didn't know. I was, I was also very affected by the fact that there was a contemporary element to this story. And that, um, what's his name? Stanley Kubrick had made this movie, which featured somebody representing Mary Eleanor, um, this uh, Italian actress. So I decided to present to the National Trust the garden as a movie poster. And Mary Eleanor would have... Far, we were just talking about Marie Antoinette and Let Them In. She would have followed the fashion. She was living around the same time as Marie Antoinette. And you know those big hairstyles. So to ca capture attention, sometimes in these big hairstyles, when they were at court, 
in Paris or in London. They would represent features of the day. If France had beaten England in a war at sea, they would have had ships in there. Sometimes they had gardens in there. So I put the whole design in a garden on a movie poster and I represented it. In a way, it's a bit like a Soviet poster because it's democratic now. So I have all, I have Mary Eleanor, I have her big wig with the mounds and the trees, the pathways that run through the garden. And then I have the honest gardening utensils in a kind of Soviet way. And then I have the columns of liberty, which I thought was really important that her dad had built and Mary Eleanor would have seen been carved out. And then I have the orangery she built and four figures in the orangery the Queen Mum, who eventually gave the... So these are busts of the Queen Mum, who eventually gave the keys of the estate to the National Trust. Her dad, her first husband, and then the shameful Stony Bows. So that was the design. I don't know. Everything has, has, has changed. I'll, there's a plan of the estate with the big mounds and the smaller rounds and eventually bursting through the 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 walls very hard to represent mounds are almost prehistoric things they mean something to people when i was doing my research i came across an amazing mound in Reykjavik in iceland that was built as a memorial in Poland, you have this remarkable mound that some general died and people from towns and villages all around Poland came to this place and they brought soil and they created massive, a massive mound. And there's that movie, was it called Dig or something? It was a Netflix one lately, somewhere down in Sussex, in I think just after the war, where they uncovered these mounds and it turns out there was, I think, a Viking ship in them. Oh, wow. So it was a burial mound. There's a whole story of the architects that one owner of the estate kind of was adamant something was there and they found that there was eventually. So, yeah, mounds have always been fascinating. And you can and go to Korea and see whole burial grounds that are mounds from 800 years ago or Glastonbury Tor. You yeah. know, it's a mystical thing that people climb up to um, the, get a view and it it brings them nearer to whatever they believe in. So, very contemporary design. It got accepted by the National Trusts as a as a, a concept. They raised the money to build it. And now, after COVID, I don't know, these institutions have lost so much money, so we'll see if this garden gets built. What do you think? It's very cool. You don't really think it's cool, though, do you? You don't no, have to say you think it's cool. I do think it's cool. Um... You're not. You're not a. You're a plants person rather than a garden designer. But do you understand the? Principle yeah, but that's it? far cooler than if you had just given that and showed. I want to make a garden with lots of circles in it. You've explained why you've done it, and you've explained the whole concept of the rivers of planting to bring all these elements of what was a traditional wall garden. And also, you want people engaging with it. You want kids climbing up these mounds and falling down. They're mounds of grass, which is probably important to say too. So you can jump on them, you can do whatever with them and it won't matter because it's just a mound of grass. Yes, and it doesn't interfere with the walls of the estate. I was restricted. They wouldn't let me burst through those walls because what I was doing was only um, meant to be in the wall garden and they can't uh, interfere beyond that. But uh, fascinating absolutely fascinating project and a real privilege to be asked to be involved and it's cool because the National Trust and a lot of these bodies often 
kind of look to just preserving these uh, sites. I think we mentioned that last week. You know, they're not about developing or changing them. And it's cool whereby if they don't have a plan, they will actually look to making something new there because there's nothing worse than going to a National Trust garden somewhere in the north of England and going to the same style of place in the, or same you know type of place in the south and seeing the very same type of plants, the very same thing done everywhere. And it all gets a little bit boring. But if they make them... You know, all these estates were unique and continuing that is far better than just preserving what was. Actually, I have to try and win a commission in a historic property next week. So maybe you're going to come up with me. Maybe I'll tell that story. What do you think? What story? Mary Eleanor's. Uh... <laughs> Might be not a good idea. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith. A Go Loud original. And that's it for season one of Dirt. If you haven't heard all the episodes, now is your chance to go back and listen to all the ones that you've missed. Seemingly everybody goes back to listen to episode one. Yeah, uh, which I've done because we had to do our homework once. So we had to listen to episode one. And yeah, it's very good. Good. Uh, we say things on it that we haven't done, like how we're going to talk about Adrian's <laughs> Garden. But maybe next year. Maybe next year. We'll do that. Uh, but we will be back next month for a bonus Christmas episode before we're returning with Series 2 in the spring. Do you have a contract? Uh, no, but I have a wheelbarrow. And on the way up here, I was testing the lift to see how big it was because the Christmas episode is going to be full of Christmas tack. And it has to look outrageous. And yeah, okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gardens look great at Christmas time and whatever. But will there be a turkey? No. It might get you a turkey for Christmas because last year I got you two crows and you didn't seem to like so it. So in Series <laughs> in 2, we'll be going back to basics so that all you novice gardeners out there will be ready to get growing once the season begins in March. If there's any topics that you'd really like us to cover, please do get in touch. Dirt is a Go Loud original podcast that drops every single Monday. Well, it dropped every single Monday until we stopped the first series. Uh, but you can still find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, subscribe and rate.